welcome back to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We're in the Cranog this week and because it is cold and wet and windy out there in the Northern Hemisphere, we're going to be talking about storms and folktales that include storms in them. Hope you enjoy. So once upon a time there was a manor house that was in the middle of nowhere and there was a laird and his wife that lived there and they were very happily married and this one particular evening it was storming outside. The wind was howling and the lightning was flashing and the thunder was rumbling away but the the laird and his wife were quite content by the fire. They were nice and cosy. The wife was heavily pregnant and when it got late the Laird decided he was going to go to bed and he stood up and he walked towards the door and his wife thought that she would go with him because she was getting quite tired as well. But the only problem was that when she stood up she immediately doubled over in pain and started screaming and the Laird was kind of like oh no what do I do? So he rushed to her side and he tried to help her out and he tried to lift her to her feet again but again she started screaming and doubled over and she just could not get out of this chair. And he realised that they were going to have to get uh, a doctor to come and help. So he called to the servant boy. There was only two other staff members in the house at this time. They'd sent everyone else home before the storm kicked in so that they could get home to their families. There was just the elderly cook and this young servant boy. The servant boy was young, but he was a good rider. So the laird sent for him and told him to ride as fast as he could to the neighbouring town and fetch the doctor and bring the doctor back to see to his wife. So the servant boy stomped away outside and he wasn't very happy about having to go out in the storm and he thought, if I go out in that storm, I'm going to catch my death. So I'm going to go into the hayloft in the stables and I'm going to wait there until it blows over because I'm sure it won't be long now. So he took himself away and he bundled himself all up in the hay nice and cosy and there he fell asleep. And what he hadn't realised was that there was a pair of eyes watching him this whole time. And those eyes belonged to the household brownie. Now for anyone who doesn't know what a brownie is, they are short, hairy creatures who love sweet things and hate laziness. And they also love to help out. So the brownie was watching this boy who had been given a task and hadn't done it and instead was snoozing in the hayloft. So the brownie put the boy's coat on, saddled up the horse and rode out himself to the neighbouring town to fetch the doctor. And he rode through the wind and the rain and when he got to the river he realised that it was getting higher and higher but he rode through it nonetheless and then he made it to the town and he fetched the doctor. And the doctor was a bit spooked when he opened the door and he found a brownie stood there. He wasn't really sure what was happening but the brownie was persuasive enough that there was an emergency. So the doctor followed him and hopped on the back of the horse and they rode back out towards the manor house um, through the wind and the rain once again and then when they reached the river it had risen about four feet and the doctor thought I'm going to get swept away this little hairy man has not stopped he doesn't look like he's going to stop and I'm going to die but the brownie rode the horse straight through the river and by some brownie magic maybe they made it through and they made it to the other side and on their way to the manor house When he got to the manor house, the laird was very relieved to see the doctor, but he was also confused to see the brownie that was with the doctor wearing the servant's coat. So he let the doctor in and the doctor saw to his wife 
and in the wee hours of the morning the baby was born and the Laird and his wife were very happy and they were so happy and so relieved that the brownie had uh, done this for them that they decided that they were going to reward the brownie and they realised that he wore rags he didn't really have any nice clothes and he seemed to like the big coat that he'd worn that he'd stolen from the servant boy so they decided to give the brownie his very own coat but no sooner than they had given the brownie the coat the brownie put it on his shoulders turned around and walked away and he was never seen again but actually before that he also flogged the servant boy for being lazy and then he disappeared and was never seen again the end (laughs) really enjoyed that ending (laughs) (laughs) well so for context for the listeners, uh, me and David went to a local brownie group, um, which not is like folk not the folk creatures. Um, <laughs> I guess it's like a kind of scouts. It's like it's younger like scouts, young girl scouts. Yeah, um, and we told them some brownie stories, and uh, I I did have to remove the flogging part from the story. I thought it was a bit brutal. All of our stories tell us you treat the brownies well, or you are punished. Mm-hmm. You get flogged. But then, if you treat them too well, they also leave. So, you know, but don't be lazy around them either. Like Nanny McPhee. Yeah. (laughs) You know what it's giving? It's giving, um, uh, Master is giving Dobby a sock. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I. Brownie is free. Yeah, I I made that comparison in the the story that's written up for that one on the website Mm -hmm. because you have. J.K. Rowling did write it in Scotland and there's a lot of similarity, like they're very short little creatures and like they do help around the house and everything. They're not really seen day to day and stuff. They kind of just make themselves kind of invisible almost. And yeah. then if you do give them clothes, they, they disappear. Mm-hmm. So get a lot of crossover with um, Germanic fairy tales as well. with like gnomes and fairies who help around the house. And then if you treat them badly, they start playing tricks on you and mm-hmm. if you treat them well they'll do little jobs for you like um the cobblers you know that that story about the little gnomes who cobbled the shoe yeah. that he makes them all clothes and i think after he makes them clothes they disappear not my unpaid intern it's <laughs> also the brownies that, that require milk and if you don't give them their bowl of milk every day they're going to huff it seems to be the ones that we're scared of are the kind of like wild brownies, like the the bogle brownie and like the brownie. Bo- well, the brownie Bosbeck did have a house, but like was still a bit mm-hmm. of a scary one and stuff. So there's probably something to say there about like the home and domestication and mm. versus the wild outdoors. I, I can just see this man sitting around the fire to be like. This brownie has been visiting our house and all of the chores are done. And it's just this magical fairy creature that does it. And his wife's standing behind him just stone face. Does anyone's thoughts about storms link into anything from that story? Well, uh, from what I was reading, it just seems like storms have multiple uses in folklore. And I think you get a bit of crossover. Um which is hard to pick out now how exactly they were used, but you could probably assume way back when storms were considered to be an act of either some kind of divinity or a response of the natural world, that it was like an intended consequence, that it was a disruption of a natural order or an event mm-hmm. that resulted in a punishment because storms were much more dangerous. and. You could absolutely be killed by a very bad storm. 
Um, and then you also have storms just acting as a vehicle for the story. Everything's a lot more dramatic when you've got a storm involved for one thing, but also uh, because of a storm, the hero couldn't make his journey or because of the storm, the hero was forced to make a journey. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we have in this case. Um, but it, so it'll be interesting to see how that crossed over if any of our other stories are kind of more like design in nature or if they have different purposes. What do you think? Yeah, I've always seen, like, I always feel like whenever there's a storm in a story, like whether it's folklore or, you know, fiction or just any type of story, I'm always like, it's about to go down. Like this, it, it almost feels like a really natural way to, like, flag an important scene or an important thing is about to happen, like, just using the environment. Um, what I find quite interesting, though, and a lot of the ones, anyway, that I've read that are kind of set in a dark and stormy night as mm -hmm. an atmosphere setter at the start, they're not the ones that's using it really to foreshadow that it's necessarily going to be a sad story. A lot of them, where it starts with a dark and stormy night, they actually turn out quite nice and, mm -hmm. well, not as nice as Scottish folklore gets in the end. <laughs> So it's a, a bit of an interesting one that you'd think maybe they would use it to foreshadow that it's going to be a bad occasion, but actually, normally it's the opposite way around of it. It starts mm -hmm. in this dark way and it works its way up towards the light. So. The storm queers Definitely a bit more about tension than mm. emotion. I yeah. There's nothing softer than the skin of a selkie. A fisherman convinced his crew to join him on the journey, scouting the crags for signs of the selkie. Because during those days, the selkies played on the beaches all over Scotland. They were easy to find, but difficult to catch. When the fishermen did find the selkies, they charged. Bravely, they struck out against the creatures, rendering them senseless. And victorious, they cheered, clutching their bounty fine selkie skins they paraded through the towns uh decked them on their boats they were absolutely beautiful they glimmered in the sun they were soft to the touch everything you could ever dream of but the sea grew angry at their vanity the sky darkened a great sweeping wave of cloud covering the swirling waters a grand swell rose as tall as the walls of Papastur. The fishermen fled to the boat, still desperately grasping their precious skins. While the crew made it, the fisherman did not. He watched as time and time again the vessel was turned away from the crag, leaving him in the den of the beasts while foaming claws of white water tried to snap him down into the depths. The crew had no choice but to turn away or be dashed against the rocks there. The fisherman clung to the walls of the crag as the vengeful rain tried to wash him down into the sea's gaping maw to be dashed against its stone teeth. While he trembled, the selkie returned. They shed their skins, hoping to aid their kin, answering a mournful lament that drowned the thunder and bellow of the waves. Their call, like nothing else, touched the fisherman's heart and drew unwilling tears from his eye. He then realized that a selkie cannot return to the sea without their skins and cannot be amongst their people. Then the fisherman saw a woman, 
she could only be their queen with shining black hair and foam white skin holding a man as he wept as she cast her eyes up to the raging skies she saw the, the fisherman fisherman she said you have done us wrong but i will make you a deal i shall carry you myself across the foam to papa's store where your people reside in return you must find my son's skin and give it to me you must do this or die here choked on kelp fisherman had but one choice to make. He agreed to the queen's bargain. She donned her skin, taking her seal shape and waited for the fisherman to climb on. Still, the waves towered and crashed against the walls of the crag. Queen, the fisherman begged, I have not a skin like your own. The seas will surely devour me. Please let me cut a hole in your shoulder and your flank so as to not be washed away. The queen gazed at his son, surrounded by her woeful people, and agreed. So the fisherman climbed on her back, taking his fillet knife and slashing quickly through her hide. The journey was perilous, and many times he thought he would never see his wife nor children again. But his grip was strong, and the queen cut through the water as, my, as his knife had through her hide. Trembling, he welcomed the stony sands of the shore. He hastened to Ham there found his crew and the stolen skins. Taking the one which shined brightest and ignoring their calls of joy and confusion, he returned to the sea to fulfill the contract. As he handed over the skin to the Selkie, she fixed him with a stony glare. That was the last the fisherman ever saw of the Selkie Queen. Even now though, the people of Ham Navo speak of a grand seal with scars upon her hide patrolling the waters ensuring that no man will ever harm her people again. I love that story. It's just so epic. I love the Selkie Queen. She just, like, puts him in his place. Yeah. It's a really good story to... When you read about stories of the Selkie, they're very passive. Mm -hmm. um, and they have something stolen from them. And if they do manage to escape and find their skins, it's often given to them. It's not that they search for their skins it's the, the their child gives it to them or you know so so on and so forth so it's nice to see a selfie being like listen i'll save your life but only if you give my son back his skin mm -hmm. um and really take more of an active role and take quite it's quite vicious i guess you know like he carves into her hide and then shoves his hands into this person's like flesh like it's one of the more um violent tales that i've read mm -hmm. for sure more mm -hmm. to the point of storms i think definitely a divine storm in this case I... and it's interesting as well because um it's you don't often get stories of selkies like associated with any kind of power over the sea like they're just part of the sea and they survive the waves by being seals and being able to dive underneath it um but this, it definitely seems like associated, like the Selkie somehow conjured that storm as the Selkie Queen. I was thinking that, like, even the fact that she is the Selkie Queen, I feel like whenever we hear about Selkies and, like, groups of Selkies, they always just have this kind of, like, just almost like a herd feel about them. Like, they're just a yeah. community. Like, there's no hierarchy or leader, but the Selkie Queen was just such a, like, that, that line about, like, never harming her people again, I was like, mm -hmm. get it, girl! Yes! Oh, queen. I was actually just thinking that. We don't really get 
too many stories. About, I think it's probably the first one I've covered where it's a Selkie queen. It's not, you know, just a Selkie story. I think I remember somewhere about having a Selkie coat would help protect, like, protect you and your crew from storms and, like, help for safe sailing. But it feels more like a superstition that may have been tacked on to the end of some of these myths. Mm. Because you do get a lot of sailing myths of you need to have things a certain way to protect your voyage. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I can't find any stories where it explicitly mentions that the reason they want this selkie coat is to protect sailors. It tends to more be they take the selkie coat so they can gain the wife. Um, and that's more, I think, about man versus nature, man versus mystic, however you want to... Ah, but you know what? Here we've got two beasties that have rescued people to be voluntarily rescuing a pregnant woman and then mm-hmm. the other one was kind of coerced into it the the selkie one acts as a warning right because he steals from the selkies and that's what brings about the storm and gets him in trouble whereas so that's like a cautionary tale and then the one about the the one about the brownie is also a cautionary tale in a way like from the perspective of the the servant boy, um, because yeah. he gets flogged at the end, um, and it's like you know, don't be lazy, be like the brownie, do the best you can, um, and the storm is a, a vehicle for those two messages. I do think it should be said though, when researching that story, there were was interestingly a lot of different takes on it, um, and there were several stories I found which were very much that this man was being punished for his actions and the Selkie Queen rescued the man, but it was not voluntary. But then there were some stories where the Selkie Queen chose to rescue the man. Mm. Um, and then because he was grateful for that, he returned a skin to her. Okay. So That really changes the the tone of it, doesn't it? Yeah. But it did make me feel a little bit like making these stories a little bit nicer for consumption. And those tend to be the older stories are the ones that are are a little bit less savory. Savory for modern <laughs> culture. Yeah. Um, and as well, that one that I'd read it referred to the exact same story from a book. It was about twenty years before that. So yeah, that's at least the kind of mid. Mm. 19th century version anyway mm-hmm. so well so it pops up a couple times in um i'm definitely gonna mispronounce it but there's this website called like toberan dualicus or something and uh it's recordings of people telling stories some of it's in english but some of it's in gallic and some of that has been translated mm-hmm. and the gallic stories had a little bit some of them were as the story I told, and then some of them were slightly more savory. <laughs> and then some of them just, you know, like little tweaks here and there, which makes folklore just so fun and so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This story takes us to the 1340s, when in 1343, Alexander Stuart, Earl of Buchan, was born, a man who would later commit such atrocities that it earned him the nickname of the Wolf of Badenoch. 
Due to all of his different names and titles, I will just refer to him as Alexander throughout this story to avoid any confusion, but he was of royal descent, being the third son of King Robert II and Elizabeth Muir of Rowallan, who in total together had 10 children, although King Robert II was father to a total of 26, or at least 26 that we're aware of, but that is a different story for another time. While we are taking a slight aside from the main story, however, uh, I do just want to talk about the origins of Badenoch. Um, in present day, Badenoch is an area of the Scottish Highlands. Um, it's now um, part of a wider area known as Badenoch and Strath's Bay. And what's interesting about Badenoch is that it's derived from a Gaelic word meaning drowned land, which is something to keep in mind for later. But back to the main story, Alexander grew up during a time of great turmoil, and things were only just beginning to recover following the Scottish Wars of Independence. The first war took place in between 1296 and 1328, and the second began only four years later in 1332, and officially ended in 1357 when Alexander was only 14. Growing up in that environment, and likely having to see the gruesome effects of wars every day, he seemed to develop quite an appetite for brutality, which expressed itself later on in his life. In 1382, Alexander married Euphemia, Countess of Ross, and gained control of a vast elderdom of Ross, which was located in the northwest of Scotland. Being also the Earl of Buchan, and owning the associated land, which is present-day Aberdeenshire on the northeast, this made him one of the most powerful men in Scotland, and he used his power to further his own ambitions to continue increasing his wealth and influence, and by this point he was not afraid to use violence to achieve these goals. Alexander's series of violent attacks included places of worship and land owned by people he didn't like, primarily the Bishop of Moray, who in 1389 helped Alexander's wife seek divorce from him as he was unfaithful to her. The divorce resulted in him losing out on land and titles that came with being married to Euphemia. And alongside this in 1390, Alexander also lost his father, which is seen as the final straw that resulted in what happened next. During his retaliation against the Bishop of Moray in 1389, Alexander set fire to a church in Finacte, destroying a number of religious books and artefacts, and he also set a number of fires in Abernethy, causing damage across the village and destroying shelters. However, his most brutal attacks took place in 1390, when Alexander and his men set fire to the town of Elgin and burned it to the ground. They plundered Elgin Cathedral, also known as the Cathedral of Moray, and set fires to buildings and hospitals in the area, taking the lives of many local inhabitants. During the same year, Alexander led a further raid across Moray, where his armies burned and plundered even more towns and villages, this time also deliberately massacring the inhabitants of those villages. He murdered the Bishop of Moray by beheading him and continued targeting religious buildings, including stealing from Greyfriars Monastery in Elgin and killing many of its monks. Alexander and his men also destroyed the town of Forez, burning it to the ground and plundering everything they could. These raids, which all took place within the same year, 1390, are what later gave Alexander the nickname of the Wolf of Badenoch. However, it wasn't a nickname that people called him to his face, and was only really popularised after his death. Following a short break, the brutal attacks resumed, and Alexander led a further attack on Aberdeen in 1392, breaking into the city and burning and plundering as before. 
Thankfully, however, his reign of terror did not last, as Alexander was captured in 1394 and imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle, where he died a short few months later at the age of 51. According to legend, Alexander was playing chess with a devil when he died. The story goes that he was losing the game, and in his rage he struck the devil with a chessboard. The devil then killed Alexander and took his soul straight to hell. During his dying moments, Alexander is said to have placed a curse on the lands of Badenoch, condemning the area and its inhabitants to a life of misfortune, hardships, and many of these have presented themselves in a series of storms and harsh weather conditions that have damaged shelters and resulted in poor crop growth and an overall general decline in prosperity across the whole area. The harsh winters, unpredictable weather patterns and frequent crop failures that have plagued the area over the centuries have since continued to be attributed to Alexander's curse. And this curse is believed to be completely inescapable. Even in present day, this curse seems to be ongoing. Looking at newspaper headlines from this area just over the last month or even the last six months, a lot of local publications report on frequent heavy rainfall and icy roads. Now, fair enough, the Highlands is cold and, you know, you could get snow earlier, icy roads. All of that isn't breaking news. But what I did find more interesting is that on the 8th of October this year, around 10 days before the beginning of Storm Babbitt, heavy rainfall and flooding and risk to life warnings were in place for the Badenoch and Strats Bay area isolating these areas as the eye of the storm. Now I've included an article so you can see the map fully, as it's interesting how the worst of the storm seems to be centered in this tiny, tiny area with amber warnings everywhere else that almost cover half of Scotland. That is quite spooky, especially when you think that later on, the red areas during the actual storm Babbitt were so much larger so this just highlights how unusual the initial weather patterns we saw over Badenoch were. Back in the summer months in June, there were also weather warnings for extreme heat in the area, with risk of wildfires. And interestingly this time, while the areas worst affected seemed to be clustered together in the highlands, there was one red dot separated from the others nearby, which, you may have guessed, was the same Badenoch area that had the flood warning. I've linked this article too so you can see um, and how those two compare, and the little areas that are always pinpointed across the two articles as having the worst weather and being the centre of some sort of natural disaster. It really does seem like Mother Nature has it out for that area, or perhaps it's the curse persisting after all these years. Spooky, right? Yeah! yeah so spooky! I like how we've got conspiracy theories now as well. Don't like this. <laughs> I love the level of research that went into that, Mila. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it. I was like, I wonder, what's the expiration of this curse? And I looked yeah. at it, and their local news is just doom and gloom. It's, <laughs> here's all these, flooded, all these flooded roads. Here's wildfires. I mean, he Alexander had a bit of a thing for arson, did he not? You think you would have abandoned the village by now? <laughs> like, well, give it up. <laughs> Scots are a very hardy people. <laughs> well, I wonder, like, how well known the story is to the people that live there now. Like, I wonder if it's one of these like local stories that everyone tells each other and everyone just knows, or if it's just like if it's on the same level as other folklore, where it's just a bit like obscure. I don't know. I'd imagine with Badenoch, he's quite a notorious figure. Mm. 
in Scotland in general, and I'd, I'd imagine from where he ruled over would be more so. And he's quite an interesting one in that in the where he's buried, they've got the kind of whole big tombstone of his figure carved mm. out, and it's one of the few remaining of that type of grave, so people can actually see the depiction mm. of him. So there's that tangible link there as well. Ooh, so I think that would make him more well renowned in the area, and the fact he burnt down. Elgin Cathedral and all these yeah. kind of places that yeah. he, he made quite a mark in the landscape. If you're from bad enough, please get in touch. We would love to hear from you and we would love to know why you still live there. The playing the chess with the devil bit as well is quite interesting because there's all these, yeah. there's quite a few stories across Scotland people playing mm. either chess or cards with the devil. Yeah, and a lot of the time Some it's kind ex- of gambling. yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of the time it's expressed to me on a Sunday, but I don't know if in that particular story whether it was or not. Yeah, but on that one it was a stormy night, and it well, I don't think it started as a stormy night. It start it turned into a stormy night when the the devil went checkmate, and then um, all of the guards were found outside the next day, dead mm. and blackened as though they'd been hit by lightning, and I think the wolf was in the grand hall, was he or something like that, in his chair, and. He looked completely still and unharmed, but all of the nails were missing from his shoes. Yeah. Such a random... That's so sinister. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's probably symbolic of something. Maybe the the shoemaker's elves wanted their cobbling <laughs> tools back. I think that it's happened before in stories, because it's not just that the nails were missing, it looks like they had been torn out of his shoes. And I think that happens in encounters with the devil like it more than once i don't know if it's been a common encounter that the devil's like taking your shoes bonnie prince charlie stole our shoes you've never let that go no (laughs) he came to dumfries and stole everyone's shoes he deserved it david he did not not while I was there, but <laughs> really few, few hundred years <laughs> before. David, David is an eldritch being yeah. for many many years. Uh, it's interesting because I know I know you're saying your story has got quite a divine storm element, but it's a little different. Like it's it's cursed divine. It's, int- it's like a perversion of the divine intervention from my story. Almost mm. bad enough can command these storms. And that shows that he's evil and a sorcerer and like a frightening larger than life presence compared mm-hmm. to in my story, the Selkie wasn't commanding the storm or in that version of the tale, it was more that the storm was protecting the Selkie, which is just interesting to see the different mm-hmm. ways that storm is used in folklore. The storm in your one machine was working it's like the elements were working to defend like you know the natural world and the creatures in it whereas in your one Mila it's it's been harnessed and it's that like harnessing of it that makes it evil and like yeah and perverted and dangerous because it's not acting in a natural way I always find stories like the kind of Wolf Barrett ones really interesting that they were big historical figures and they did carry out a lot of the thing like the burning of the cathedral and the burning down of Elgin and all that kind of stuff but it's how stories and Fuller has woven its way through it mm-hmm. that I find just really intriguing because you can't really separate the individual from the legend that he is now mm-hmm. it's just fun to see the way that kind of culture weaves its way into history yeah and then the more 
a take is, you know, the more a story is told a specific way, the more and more real it becomes. Yeah, and then part of it, you might think, oh, well, what's the truth behind it and things, but probably part of the reason these stories have grown out of him was because that was a representation of how people saw him mm -hmm. or saw what he did. Mm -hmm. So that has a truth in it in itself. I think we did a story recently about Bloody Tam, who was also gambling with the devil, tried to cheat him, devil throws big marble table at him. But unlike the wolf of Badenoch, Bloody Tam didn't really actually do that much to deserve his reputation. It was only afterwards in his association um, with the loyalists, the royalists even, um, that it kind of, his, his reputation grew to be a bit larger than life. Whereas the wolf of Badenoch definitely, I think, earned that reputation based on what he was doing. Well, best part and worst part about humans is where we recognize patterns. <laughs> and if you're hit by multiple bad storms, crop failing, wildfires, then the next minute, and it all seems to coincide with this man who lived such a violent and like ruthless life, I'd be tempted to be like, coincidence? I think not. Mm -hmm. So this one's called Tom and Willie. Tom and Willie, two young fishermates of Luna in Shetland, were rivals for the hand of the fair Osla, daughter of Yarn. Now, it so happens that one October afternoon, they took their hand lines and went out fishing together in their boat. Towards dusk, the wind rose and soon it blew so hard as to compel the young men to run for the nearest shelter, a haven in the islet of Linga in Walsey Sound which they happily reached in safety. The islet was uninhabited and the fishermen had with them neither food nor the means of kindling a fire. They had, however, a roof over their heads, for there was a hut or lodge on the island used by fishermen in the fair weather season, but deserted since the close of that period. For two days the storms raged without ceasing, and at last the situation of the castaways began to grow very serious. However, on the morning of the third day, a little before daybreak, Willie, who was awake before his companion, discovered that the weather had fared, and that the wind blew in a favouring direction. Upon this, without rising Tom, he proceeded to the boat, which lay safely hauled up upon the shore, and by dint of great exertion managed to launch her single-handed. Meantime, Tom had awoke, and at last, as Willie did not come back, he followed him to the noost, or the place where the boats are drawn up, and here a sight met his view which filled him with dismay. The yawl had disappeared from her place, but raising his eyes, he beheld her already far out at sea, and speeding before the breeze in the direction of Luna. At this sight, poor Tom gave way to despair. He realised his comrade had baselessly and heartlessly des deserted him, he knew that it was not likely that the islet would be visited until the fishing season should come around again, and he had small hopes of help from any exertions on his behalf which might be made by his friends, seeing that they would be in ignorance where to look for him. Amid melancholy thoughts and forebodings, the day passed slowly, and at nightfall he betook himself to a shakedown of straw within the lodge. Darkness closed in and he slept, but towards the small hours of the morning he was suddenly awakened, 
when great was his astonishment to see the hut was lighted up with strange illumination, whilst a queer and human hum and chatter, accompanied by the patter of many pairs of little feet, and the jingle of gold and silver vessels smote upon his ear. A fairy banquet was in fact in course of preparation in the lodge. Tom raised himself noiselessly upon his elbow, and watched the proceedings. With infinite bustle and chatter, the table was laid. Then there entered a party of trows who bore between them in a chair litter, a female fairy to whom all appeared to pay honour. The company took seats and the banquet was at the point of commencing, when in the moment of the scene of festivity was changed to one of wild alarm and confusion. A moment more and Tom learnt to his cost the cause of the sudden change. The presence of a human had been detected, and at a word from their queen the grey people swarmed together, swarming together were about to rush upon the intruder. But in this trying juncture Tom did not lose his presence of mind. His loaded fowling piece lay by his side, and as the fairies rushed upon him, he raised it to his shoulder and fired. In an instant the light was extinguished, and all was darkness, silence, and solitude. Let us now return to the perfidious Willie reaching Luna in safety. He related a tragic tale which he had invented on the voyage, to account for the absence of the comrade, and finding that his story was believed, he began anew without much loss of time to urge his suit upon the fair Osla. Her father Yarm regarded him with favour, but the maiden herself turned a deaf ear to all his entreaties. She felt she would not love him, and besides, she was haunted by suspicion that Tom, in whose welfare she felt a tender interest, had been the victim of foul play. Pressure was, however, put upon her, and in spite of her, her objections, an early day was fixed for the wedding. The poor girl was in great distress, however, one night, when she had cried herself to sleep, she dreamed a dream, the result of which was the next morning she proceeded to the house of Tom's parents and begged them to join her in a search for their missing son. This notwithstanding their love for him, they were somewhat reluctant to do, arguing that even supposing him have been abandoned as she divined upon one of the rocky islets on the coast. He must ere now have perished from exposure and starvation. But the girl persisted in her entreaties, which at last prevailed. The boat was manned and by Osla's direction was steered towards Luna, upon approaching which, sure enough, as the girl had predicted, it was discovered that the islet was a human tenant. Had a human tenant. Tom made his friends on the beach. And then the first eager greetings had, and when the first eager greetings had passed, Surprise was expressed at the freshness and robustness of his appearance. But this surprise increased tenfold when, in recounting his adventure, he explained that during the latter days of his isolation, he had supported his life upon the remains of the scarcely tasted fairy banquet, adding, adding that never in his life before had he fared so delicately. On their return to Luna, the party were received with rejoicings, and it's scarcely necessary to add that Tom and Osla were soon made man and wife. From that time forward, Willie prospered no more. The loss of his health and fortune followed that of his good name, and he sank ere long into an early and unregretted grave. I really liked how there was almost like a folktale, or like the birth of a folktale within the folktale. Because you know when the guy goes back and he makes up this wild story about how his pal got lost at sea, <laughs> and 
Like, that's how a lot of folk stories start. And I just really enjoyed that little... It felt quite meta. Yeah. <laughs> I felt bad for the fairies, because here they are for a nice dinner party, and then a, a home intruder shoots them all. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they did, like, try to attack him. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, if I'm sitting in my house having dinner and a man suddenly just walks in with a gun, I'm not going to sit there and be like, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds like he he was on like the fairies of AK Island. They could have just sat in like a wee setting or something, like a wee place at the table, giving him a bit of dinner. Yeah, well, the interest, you're not allowed to eat the food of the fairies, but he does. Mm. So I was wondering, yeah. I wonder if he had any like negative effects what happens if after the, the story. Fairies? Well, it says that like if you find yourself in fairyland, don't eat the food because then you'll get stuck there. Ah, but they were in this world. Yes, maybe it's okay. They were in this world, but I've heard that before as well, that that's how a fairy can entice you into their world as well, is mm-hmm. through their food. And it's uh, there was a story I read once where they had fairy food and then they couldn't, they starved to death because they couldn't imagine eating anything. Like they'll never have anything as fine again. Oh, that's grim. Well, they did say it was very the most decadent food he'd ever had. Yeah, so maybe it? after the story, he goes home, he gets married, he can't eat anything, and he dies. Yeah. There's your tragic mm. ending. I just, I can't root for Tom. <laughs> 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 maybe Wooly was right. <laughs> <laughs> Wooly abandoned his pal on the island. <laughs> <laughs> we just, we don't know what his behaviour was like. Yeah, maybe this was the final, maybe he, like, saw a lucky escape and he was like, oh. The storm. The storm. Yes. That's what the got them there in the first place. Yes. How I would... So more of a vehicle for story mm-hmm. than yes. like the first story we had. Yeah. Put all your characters in the one place. It's your inciting yeah. incident. Mm-hmm. Began Tom's hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Or descent into well, it was murderous like, rampage. It was more, what's her name, Osla's hero's journey, really. He just kind of sat there. <laughs> <laughs> And then tried to shoot <laughs> some fairies. <laughs> he really didn't do much heroic-wise. He just kind of was there. Yeah. Mm. Ate some food. Yeah. Waited to be rescued. Yeah. Yeah, good on Osla for being like, no, I think we should maybe look for him. <laughs> no, I like I like that. It's, it's good to have the storm as the vehicle again. But interesting that it wasn't then used to punish uh, Wooly. Mm. It just seems like a kind of thing to, you know, and then he went out to voyage and was stuck in a storm. So what ones have we had through our story? One that's the vehicle to start the story. We've had mm. one that's the, We've had the kind divinity of that of well, as... Two as, sides of the same coin of divinity, I would say. Yeah. Um, one is like storm as a tool of divinity and then one is storm as the divinity itself mm-hmm. then and then had... a- another one for a vehicle but um at the climax of the story instead of at the beginning like the story of tom tom and willie is like quite tense but compared to rebecca's it's much more calm i think because you mm. have the storm at the beginning mm. and then the tensest moment for tom is confronting the fairies at the feast yeah, it's a, a kind of a yeah. light one in my head because as I say, as you say, the storms like that first couple of days where not a lot happens in the story, and then mm. it all kind of happens during the light. Whereas like your one that has the tension and the drive because it's a storm throughout and it's fighting through yeah. the storm. Yeah, and it's not just a storm yeah. throughout. The storm builds in danger because like first of all it's stormy, and then we're going out in the storm, 
and then we get to the river and the river's a bit high but like we cross it and then the next time we get to the river it's like risen four feet and we're gonna get swept away yeah like so like the storm gradually gets more and more dangerous throughout the story and then immediately the storms are kind of almost like a reflection of the, the character of the person mm-hmm. I think we've covered storms quite well. Yeah, we're, I bet we will never look at a storm in the same way again. Especially if we live in Barno. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Ko-fi page which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.